When it comes to snacking, Kind believe you shouldn't have to choose between delicious and nutritious. They've brought both together. Plant-based protein boost bars with recipes packed full of flavour and high-quality ingredients. With three delicious flavours to choose from, including toasted caramel, double dark chocolate and crunchy peanut butter. And with each bar containing 12 grams of protein, what's not to love? Shop in-store or online at superdrug.com. No artificial colours, flavours or preservatives and gluten-free. All contain nuts. This episode contains honest conversations around topics like self-harm, suicide and anxiety, which some listeners might find triggering. Please decide if it's right for you to listen. Hi guys, I'm Matt Johnson, your host for a very special Mention Health podcast with Superdrug. Today we are going to be discussing the big issues surrounding men's health, men's mental health, asking why it can be so difficult for men to speak up and what we can all do to remove the stigma and support the men in our lives. Now joining me today are musician, presenter and my online therapy ambassador, Stephen Manderson, aka Professor Green. Hello there. What's happening, mate? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm very good. Thank you. Very, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, writer, campaigner, and social activist Alexander Leon. Hey, Matt. How you doing? I'm very good. Thank you. Are you all right? I'm good. I'm good. Marvelous. Thank you very much for coming on. And TV personality and presenter Chris Hughes. Chris, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, my friend. Hope you're good too, man. Nice one. And doctor, broadcaster and best-selling author, Amir Khan. Hi there, Amir. Hi, Matt. Lovely to see you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. My reception wasn't too great by the... Of course, we might have some technical difficulties because <laughs> we are in the bunker of our lives right now, aren't we? <laughs> uh, thought I'd better throw that warning out now. Uh, Stephen, now, I'm going to go straight in there if you don't mind. Shit. It's quite a big question to start. Now... Wait. I, I would love to hear a, a little about your personal experiences with your own mental health. Um, my experiences with my own mental health began before I even knew what mental health was. Um, and it presented as a physical symptom, to be honest. Uh, my earliest memories of what I now understand to be my first encounters with mental health were me going, Nan, my, my Nan brought me up, by the way, um, was me going, Nan, Nan, I've got a bellyache. Um, and because I had an operation when I was six weeks old, it was always back and forth to the doctors and to the hospital and looking for some sort of physical problem. Um, I didn't have the language, the tools or the understanding to say, I'm suffering with anxiety. You know, this knot in my stomach is is a psychological problem, not physical one. Um, and it took me till quite late in my life to understand that that was a psychological problem and that whenever I encounter periods of stress, that's where it, it tends to head straight to. Even even in my life now, I'm much better at recognizing it and handling it. But um, yeah, it's still now in periods of my life when I'm incredibly stressed or overworked or overwhelmed, it, it goes straight to my gut, which I think a lot of people can probably relate to. Can you describe that feeling very quickly? It's debilitating. It's just like a tightening of everything that centers right here. Um, you know, sometimes you kind of want to scratch your own skin off. You just want to get out of your skin. It's, it's horrible. It makes it, it makes it impossible to concentrate and to focus. Um, makes it really hard to motivate yourself as well. Um, but I've always pushed against it. I think a lesson that I've learned over the years, um, is that the only way we become resilient is, is by encountering difficult situations and surviving them and learning that you can come out the other side of them, but only if you keep going, um, I think resilience is often a word that gets forgotten when we encourage people to be more open and more honest about their sensitivities and their vulnerabilities. 
um, resilience is really important. And I think there's probably, uh, I'm sure Dr. Amir can tell us more about this, but I think there's probably such thing as a healthy amount of stress in the same way that there is healthy physical stresses that we can put ourselves through to make ourselves stronger. Um, but I think all too often we don't, you know, we're not educated, we're not given the tools as children to to cope with the stresses we might encounter mentally to make them things that we can deal with better. Well, what a start. I mean, to have that as a career as well, when you're in the public eye, when you go on stage as well, and to, to be able to manage that is quite something. And and now, Chris, I'm going to move on to you. Uh, you've, you've previously spoken very openly about suffering with anxiety and panic attacks. Um, what is that like for you to experience? Well, it's like Stephen just said, it makes you want to kind of scratch your skin. And it's, there's, you know, so many issues that it, would, it can affect. But for me, when I first suffered with anxiety, it was around the age of 21. And I got into a horrible routine within my mindset where I was working in an office job at the time. And I used to clock watch. And I knew when I left work, um, this kind of anxiety distraction would kick in. So when I got home from work, it would all kind of come upon me. And I didn't know what it was at the time. Again, it was something that even for me six years ago is nowhere near spoken about how it is now. And for me, you know, that the whole anxiety was like, it was like a sinking feeling. I couldn't sit still when I had it. I used to go to bed and I'd have, um, have bad anxiety. And for me, I had to be occupied. I had to get up. I used to go to the gym late at night. I used to go and drive my car. I used to do anything to give myself like a mental distraction from the fact that I'm suffering with anxiety. And that went on for, a, for a, a, like a, you know, a, a long amount of time, a few years or so. And it wasn't until I said to my mum, I said, you know, this isn't, this isn't normal. Like, I shouldn't be feeling like this. And it's, um, it's, it's really tough. Like you have those tough conversations, but you know, I spoke out and then it was, I saw a hypnotherapist initially. I didn't know what kind of avenues to exploit. So I exploited the things that I thought was right for me. I saw a hypnotherapist. I worked on different things and then I saw psychologists and I just saw people, um, who could help me even speaking to my friends speaking to my mum was like a big burden off my shoulder I kind of was speaking about something that I was suffering with which I kind of initially didn't want to speak to anyone that's why I didn't because I thought well they're not going to understand this experience I'm going through and uh, everything became better you know I, I managed to cope with my anxiety now when I have it I have ways of coping with it and I know that what I've been through before isn't going to phase me now because it's just another one of those stepping stones. And I think that's the beauty of it. And for me, panic attacks is something which was a lot more recently um, to my life. And I had my first panic attack only about a year and a half ago and I was in a gym when it happened. And honestly, I thought I was having a stroke. It's, it's so hard to experience to someone who hasn't had a panic attack, but I had pins and needles go all through uh, both my arms up until sort of like my forearm. And I couldn't really have any function of them. But then that whole worry and panic, the whole pins and needles kind of concept went through my whole body, literally to the tips of my feet, where my toes are, to like the top of my head, like overtook my whole body. I cramped up, my fingers were like cramped like this and I couldn't move my hands for about 15, 20 minutes. And I was obviously like hyperventilating a bit. My breathing became difficult and I didn't know what was happening. And now, even now, knowing like the beauty of kind of being able to deal with what I've been through before. Now when I have a panic attack, I've had about five or six now, I know ways of dealing with it. And it gets easier every time because, you know, people understand as well what I'm going through. And I think that's the beauty of, you know, breaking the whole stigma around it, um, break the stigma down around it. What does it feel like when you talk openly about your anxiety? Uh, it... Well, you, yeah, we and you have done something before as well, Matt, um, yeah. in the past. And 
I struggle talking about it because it brings back so many emotions, but I know that that's it's a good thing to do. It's a powerful thing to do. And I'm blessed to have a platform now in which I can influence other people, especially the younger generation, the people around me who kind of look up to me in that respect to do that as well. And yeah, I, I find it hard to talk about, um, but it's, it's such an important thing to discuss. And, um, it's something that, yeah, I, I'm proud of being able to discuss openly now. And we're very pleased and very proud that you're part of this show to talk so openly about it. Now, Alex, uh, is there, this is something that is very close to you and you're very, very passionate about. Why uh, have you focused so much of your work and time on mental health? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question because I was reflecting on the question as you were saying it. I'm, I guess I'm not passionate about mental health itself. You know, it's not like an impassioning thing. It's more being passionate about mental health inequality. And I'm going to explain that. So, you know, for me, very similarly to Stephen and to Chris, you know, my journey around understanding mental health and mental health issues more broadly was based on my own journey, my own you know experiences of poor mental health, anxiety, depression, <clears throat> suicidal ideation, you know, the whole gamut of like really difficult, um, I guess, personal things. Um, and that was always tied to my identity. So um, I'm a gay man, I'm a brown man. Um, and my experiences of poor mental health were always linked to the fact that I felt like I didn't fit in for whatever reason, whether it was in within my community, within my family, within my country, whatever it was. And it took me a long time of kind of doing a lot of soul searching and thinking about my place in the world and, you know, how I felt about myself, how I felt about the people around me and the relationship between me and the people around me to, I guess, realize that it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault that I was dealing with poor mental health. And the more I looked into the mental health of different communities of which I was a part, so the LGBT community, for example, uh, people of color more broadly, I started to realize that these are communities that have poor mental health outcomes. So people don't often understand that, for example, over 50% of LGBT people have experienced depression. That's way, way above the national average. And you see uh, ex you know, similar experiences within black and brown people and people of color. And so for me, realizing that it was these parts of my identity which were leading to, in some ways, poor mental health for me and for people around me made me realize that it was something that I cared, you know, needed to care about actually, not only from a personal level and trying to look after myself and manage my own mental health, but also for, my, for the well-being and, and the care of my community. Amir, hi, matey. Hi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. You've been listening to, to, to why men want to talk about their mental health, and there's some incredible stories, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot more to come. But why is it so tough for men to speak out? Why, why is there such a stigma? It's really tough. Uh, and I experienced this as a, as a GP, you know, when I speak to men about their mental health, uh, you can see right from the start that they are finding it really hard to talk to. Uh, in terms of prevalence of mental health issues, uh, statistically, it's more prevalent in women, but that is because men don't open up about it. Uh, and if you compare that prevalence to suicide rates, 75% of suicide attempts are in men, which is really, really worrying. Uh, so it just doesn't add up. There's a, there's a mismatch between the diagnosis of depression and anxiety and those men who are self-harming and, and uh, sadly killing themselves as, as, as well. Uh, and this goes back to these old cultural views of how men should 
should be. They should be macho. Uh, they should be, uh, you know, the, the stoic. Big boys don't cry. Men should just get on with it. They shouldn't talk about their feelings. And even though it's 2020 and we're listening to these really powerful stories now, these are so entrenched in our culture. Uh, and Alex touched on uh, people from Black and South Asian communities. It's even more entrenched in those cultures and they're less likely to talk about it, but have much, much higher prevalence uh, of mental health uh, uh, issues. It's also tough to know where to start when when you are feeling that way. It's tough to know who to talk to, who the right person to talk to is. Uh, and, and it can feel really, really overwhelming. And I'm, sh- I'm, I'm really glad that, that Stephen talked about some of the physical signs of depression, because we, we know uh, about feeling hopeless, we know about feeling low, but some of these symptoms could manifest themselves really, really strongly as physical symptoms, that awful feeling in your stomach, that, that tight feeling in your chest, the shortness of breath, the pins and needles all over, and it can feel very much like you are going to die, and it often does get investigated as physical symptoms, and when nothing physical is found, uh, they're often discarded as going, oh, well, there's nothing serious wrong with you, off you go, Uh, and nobody really opens up the box of, well, actually, this is serious, these are serious mental health issues, and that can put people off from from talking about it as well. Uh, So it's it's really important that we talk about every single symptom, uh, and we talk about how people can get help. Can I throw a question to you, Amir? You mentioned um, self-harm and suicide. Now, Mm. I think when people think of self-harm, they often think of someone who's got scars over their arms from quite obvious methods of self-harm and typical methods. But self-harm, I know from my own experience, can be a very different thing to cutting oneself, can't it? It, it really can. Uh, and men are, are more likely to, to go down self-destructive behaviours, which can, can be a form of self-harm. And that doesn't necessarily have to be physically harming yourself in, in such an obvious way, but it could be drug abuse, alcohol abuse, uh, and, and those kind of things that, that do uh, lend themselves to self-harming uh, and neglecting their, their their own health in a way, you know, d- coming out of the, the gym or any exercise programs that they may have otherwise done. Uh, so they're all classed as forms of, of self-harm. Alex, what are the different forms of stigma that men face around mental health? Well, I think Amir's just touched on this idea of, you know, like, and this is not a new conversation, I think, you know, masculinity is an oppressive force, forcing us all to not talk about our feelings, to be stoic, to be unemotional. I think that's something that we all know about. And I don't necessarily know that that's that's something um, that is new to many of us. I think what I would like to talk about and something that I find really interesting is, you know, what does masculinity mean for different types of men? You know, the idea of what a man is is not monolithic. You have men who are from working class backgrounds. You have men who are black or Asian or people of color. You have men that are gay. You have men that are trans. The idea of being a man is not, uh, it's nuanced, right? And I think for me, what's really important to talk about is, you know, yes, there is a stigma around masculinity and around being a man when it comes to talking about your mental health. But that stigma can be compounded by these other factors, as Amir very rightly said. Also, I mean, I really want you to be my GP, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> uh, just seem like the loveliest, but I, I need a new GP as well, so we'll discuss that in a bit. But, um, you know, as Amir very, very rightly said, you know, for example, to be a black man or to be a South Asian man, as, as me and Amir are, you know, we come from cultures where the idea of what it means to be a man is much more traditional and the year 2020 has nothing to do with a, you know, it, it, as Vimir said, again, it's 2020, but, you know, in my community, in my ethnic community, uh, there, there is very little progress on, on men talking about their mental health. In fact, I'd say there's even more stigma. I also think when we talk about gay men or LGBT people in general, 
we often think of gay men, and to an extent trans men, I think, as being somewhat liberated from the idea of oppressive masculinity. Like, oh, well, gay men, you know, they're they can be effeminate, they can go and do drag, they can go and do all these things. But actually, one of the things which is often missing in that is the journey that many gay men have taken to get to that point, right? For me, for example, my mental health can be directly linked to the fact that the idea of what a man should be or what a boy should be was pushed on me my entire life. And I was really actively struggling against it. You know, I grew up in a school where I didn't want to hang out with any of the boys because we were all beating each other up and like playing sports. I wanted to hang out with the girls. And I felt from a very young age that that made me different and that made me somehow, you know, fundamentally wrong. And I I believe that it's that thought and those series of thoughts which led to poorer and poorer mental health as I, you know, came into my adolescence, realised that I was same-sex attracted and realised that there was no space in, in the word or the concept of masculinity for someone like me. You know, so I think we have to bring more nuance to this conversation. We have to bring more colour to this conversation, both figuratively and literally, because being a man is not, it's not as simple as I think we sometimes make it out to be in this conversation. Amir, what, what would you say to that? I, I would agree completely. I think it, it definitely, you know, I work in inner city Bradford, which is, you know, hugely multicultural. Uh, and, and these stereotypes of what men should be uh, is entrenched. What I would also add to this conversation is often that men can be the worst enemies of other men when it comes to these stereotypes. You know, it's, it, you know, it's hard. Uh, they, they often are the ones saying, oh, mate, you'll be all right. Don't worry about it. Uh, but but we need men not just to open up about their own uh, mental health issues, but we need men to listen to other men and be supportive of other men as well. And I think that's a a, a real issue that just we, we're just not hitting right now. Mate, you just hit a nail on the head because it's always, and I, look, I've been guilty of this. It's like, if you see someone crying, the first thing you want to tell them to do is to stop crying. You don't ask them why they're crying, innit? It's like this, 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 this it's almost internalized that. Yeah, but You've you internalized that idea. We just want to fix a problem. And I think there's an innate yeah. want in all of us to fix a problem rather than listen to what the problem is and understand it to then perhaps find a resolution for the problem. Alex, I had a question for you. Um, a, a bit, uh, I'm going a bit backwards, but do you think part of the problem is applying behaviors to genders? Like yes, me, me as 100%. a straight man, I can be quite effeminate. Um, but that shouldn't mean that I have to be considered camp. I don't, and, do you know what I mean? Like it, there, there's all yeah. these names and tags, uh, and, boxes. you know, things that exact, yeah, boxes think, that we want to put people yeah. in. And I, I just, I think there is a real problem with applying behaviors to genders. And I know that's not an easy problem to unpick. We can't just go out and all of a sudden, you know, unpick that problem throughout and across society. Yeah. But I think that, that to me raises a huge problem. Yeah, I mean, before I was bullied and teased for being gay, I was bullied and teased for being, for acting outside of the expectations of my gender, right? Because you don't know necessarily that you're gay at five years old, for example. You know, you don't, you don't, you've not developed feelings around attraction. I just wasn't, I mean, it's almost bizarre to say, but I wasn't a manly boy, right? I wasn't a boy in the way that people expected boys to be. I mean, I really believe that the, the gender binary and the way that we look at gender in, in, in the kind of binary and strict way that we do is, is one of the most oppressive forces that we have around mental health. Because, I mean, women suffer from this too. We're talking about men's mental health, but women suffer from the kind of imposition of, of the expectations of their gender, and that affects their mental health poorly. So broadly speaking, it's affecting everyone badly. Um, and I think we need more flexibility and more kind of compassion and understanding for people who don't fit within these really narrow boxes of what a man or a woman should be like, or anyone in between for that matter. 
I mean, as well, and when we're younger, we, we tend to take it more to heart, whether it's subconsciously or consciously. So whether we are living within our boxes that I'm a lad from the valleys in South Wales and I, I had to live up to a certain stereotype, otherwise I wasn't tough or mean or a real man. And I mean, I now know at 37 years old that that's nonsense. But when I was nine and 12 and 16, I, I didn't have much logic. And, and the, the parameters that I put myself around or my society put myself around and my environment put me into, I, I wasn't necessarily comfortable with that. But when you're young, you take it very, very, very um, seriously. Mm. Uh, like I said, subconsciously as well, which is, you know, lots of people when they get older, they start to deal with their inner child work and all that type of stuff where they try and get rid and shed this, this, this consciousness, this, this state of conditioning that takes a long time to get rid of. And, and, and having a conversation just like this just makes you feel like you're not alone in this. Now, Stephen, I'm going to go back to you. And uh, men in this world suffer in silence, don't they? They have all these issues and they, they can't work things out and they struggle to move forward in certain areas of their lives. Why do you think men are suffering in silence? I think because of the idea of an archetypal male, as we've spoken about, really it's all of the pressures that society puts on us as boys to be men without ever telling us what a man is, really beyond biologically um, and I think we should have freedom to mm. be whoever and however we want to be beyond that you know we are born biologically as men and I don't think that should necessarily dictate our behaviors or how we have to be or where we should you know our placement in society but yeah it does there's still a lot of constraints that people feel bound by um, my dad definitely suffered somewhat in silence and ended up taking his own life when I was 24 um, I hadn't spoken to him for six years. That was another quite harsh encounter with mental health for me. Um, not least of all because I found out that his brother had done the same two years before. So I started to worry about whether or not, you know, is this genetic? Am I predisposed to this? Mm. Um, and I do suffer lows, but I also suffer highs. And that's not something you often <laughs> hear people say, right? But it, I think we all strive, like we, we all chase happiness. And I think fulfillment is a, a far more important thing to to look for. Uh, beyond happiness but you should feel highs and you should feel lows and I think problems arise for me and I start to notice things aren't quite as they should be when I don't really feel either of those things you know but I don't think happiness is sustainable I don't think it's something that anyone can feel all of the time if you did life would be linear it wouldn't be happiness I think content is really what the baseline should be and some people exist a little bit beneath that um, I'm one of those people if I'm making bad decisions but when I don't feel great, it's quite easy to make bad decisions, which make me feel better for a short while and then make me feel a hell of a lot worse afterwards. What What was the main reasons for you, Stephen, that you you now are a pioneer and you, and you are an ambassador for many mental health charities? What, what makes you get up and do that every day? What inspires you now? Um, for me, it was um, I, it was an accident. So I wrote a song about my father's passing. Um, and it ended up being my biggest hit to date. What I didn't realize uh, with that was that I was going to have to talk about it all the time. Um, and so I had to engage with those those feelings and those emotions an awful lot uh, in quite public domains. Um, what you'll learn if you ever go to therapy is that actually suppressing something is what causes problems. So it was, I guess, in the long term, quite a cathartic process for me because what I learned is that it hasn't made me cold. I can just talk about those things without them having power over me emotionally because they've been at the forefront of my mind for so long. 
Um, so I began having those conversations and they were difficult at first. Now I can sit here and talk openly and honestly without the emotional attachment that comes with those feelings of old. Whereas before I would have been sitting here finding it incredibly hard to talk about these things and getting upset. You know, it's not to say that it, it will never not be sad what my dad did. You know, some of the other things I've encountered in my life will never not be upsetting. That said, I don't have to be upset every time I talk about them. How do you how do you deal with the, the the sadness that comes and you say that resilience? How do you keep it straight as as it was? Um, dealing with sadness, I, mean, I used to have to let it come up and out. But um, you know, I think something as well as talking about resilience is like everyone always encourages everyone to be open and honest. But be careful, man! Like you can't be open and honest with everyone. Not everyone should know everything about you, um, and you have to be careful with who you trust. And you also have to be. You have to have a level of understanding yourself, even if you've built yourself up to be able to tell someone that you have an issue. If it's not something they've encountered, they're not necessarily going to understand or be able to help you. Um, so you might get told to put yourself together or look, oh, you'll be fine. Let's just go for a pint. Um, and then you're broken back down and you have to build yourself up again. But, you know, it's about, I guess, educating people to to look for help in the right places. And I think that the main reason for me keeping this conversation going, the main inspiration by by wanting to always, you know, keep this conversation going is every time that I get tired of it, we hear of someone passing. You know, this isn't a problem that's going away. Statistically, things are not improving. So that is the driving force behind me continuing to, to have this conversation at, at almost every given opportunity. Mindcare by Superdrug Online Doctor, the start of your mental health journey. With so many mental health applications available and different treatment options out there, it can take a long time to find the approach that suits you. Our doctors make this more manageable by providing an initial diagnosis of your condition and guiding you to support that matches your needs. With Mindcare, we offer a video consultation service where you can book a 15-minute session with a specially trained doctor to get an initial diagnosis and advice about your mental health. Find out more information for Mindcare at onlinedoctor.superdrug.com slash mindcare. Mindcare, providing support when you need it. Online doctor service subject to terms and conditions. Our doctor will review your medical assessment to determine if you're suitable for treatment. If you're medically unsuitable for our service, we will refund you fully. Suitable for 18 and overs only. And Chris, you've had experience in that. You're, you very recently became very famous with millions of followers. And then I worked with you when you first really openly went into the arena of mental health awareness and um, working with a charity, etc. What was it like for you to put yourself out there? And did you feel that res the weighty responsibility that comes with it? Yeah, it was a... It was a tough one at the time, obviously, because of everything I've been through and experienced. It was something I wanted to speak more openly about. And like Steve said, there's such a there's such a seemingly responsibility for males to to have in this world. And I've recently done a documentary with the BBC on male fertility, and it just goes to show even the knock-on effects. Then speaking to other families who and males who've suffered with their fertility have such a mental effect on them because essentially they're thinking it should be their responsibility to fulfill the wish of having a child. There's so many there's so many stigmas around how men should be and how they're personified in life. And I think that's one of the toughest barriers to overcome. But for me, I mean, 
just have being able to have a platform has been a real blessing. I find great strength in being able to speak about it and even having the discussion with uh, you five, uh, four guys today and us five together. I think, you know, it's, um, it's like a special thing being able to talk about and knowing that, you know, you can influence or potentially help somebody who's suffering in similar ways going forward. And it is, uh, it is you know, it's tough. It's, um, it is tough. And like you say, you have highs and lows. And for me, I always, I just like doing things nowadays, what makes me happy. I know what makes me happy. And I go to those things when I suffer in certain ways, when I have my anxieties, when I feel a bit low. I know the kind of things what make me feel happy, what pick me up. And I know what doesn't. And that's just my own learning process as to things that I've been through and a bit of trial and error. And uh, it's just great to, you know, to be able to, to have a voice in that respect. And like you say, I've come off with, you know, people who will see what I do. They'll, people will see this, this podcast, what goes out, people will be uh, tuning in. And it's, yeah, it's great to obviously have this discussion. It's, it's about normalizing the conversation and, and yeah. you've both done that incredibly well and everybody's done that really well. But obviously, for me, the next level is to normalize services, normalize therapies. And Alex, you've been very vocal about doing that on your socials, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, I think social media is one of those things where it can be a really lovely force for good. It can help you find a community, it can make you feel good about yourself, but it also has a kind of dark side that we all know about, which is that it can be quite destructive. And I think, and Stephen kind of spoke to this somewhat before about the kind of lows and highs of life. You know, we all know that actually living life, it's not like a, it's not all like, you know, rainbows and unicorns. We all know that, right? Life is hard sometimes. You know, I think it's important that we, that we add nuance and that we add a bit of complexity to our online personas, right? Because at the end of the day, they are curated personas. And one of the things that I've always wanted to do is I guess like without, I think it's hard sometimes people think that if you talk about the lows in your life, particularly on social media, because there's an intentional aspect to it, that you're kind of like, I guess, asking for help. And I always get lovely messages from people when I'm like, oh, you know, I've had a terrible day and I'm feeling really low and I went to therapy and this is what happened. People reach out and they're like, you know, I'm here for you. And I'm like, thanks, Barbara. I know. I really appreciate that. But I think that there is a, there is a, I think it's important that we, that we don't feel afraid to talk about the lows that we experience. When it comes to therapy and sharing my therapy journey, I think I was just hyper aware of the fact that particularly in my community, it's very difficult to, I mean, there's lots of problems in finding therapists for various different reasons. Um, you know, it's very difficult to find a therapist quickly and easily um, in the public system in this country and, and in Australia, where I'm from. It's very difficult, there's long wait times. Particularly if you uh, identify in, in, in certain ways, if you're black and brown and you want a black and brown therapist, there's no avenue for that. You know, if you're queer, if you're LGBT and you're an LGBT therapist, there's, there's really no avenue for that in the public system. And so often for people like me who are dealing with poor mental health as a result of or, or in relationship to our identity, what we need is a therapist who really profoundly understands those aspects of, of being either personally or has studied it. Um, and I was just hyper aware of the fact that there are very few people out there, particularly LGBT people, who have access to that kind of therapy, paying out of my own money to go to kind of queer specialist therapy and basically just sharing my reflections. Because often what I found is the reflections that I have through the therapeutic process, when I share them with people in my life, very often just by talking them out, A, it makes me feel better and it makes me feel better about what I'm going through and myself, but it has the, the, the opportunity to help other people when I say, you know, I was feeling this way about myself because I learned that, you know, with my parents this happened or when I was growing up this happened, so many people when I talk about those things online and actually in my with my friends and family go, oh my God, I never thought about that and that's so true. And not everyone has the opportunity to sit down with a therapist in that way. So I just think for me, it's like sharing a public good. If I can have realizations about myself, 
why not share them with other people and, and hopefully be able to you know maximize the impact of those reflections yeah i think that's a great point as well alex makes about you know having somebody relatable to speak to it, it's when like you then become to open out as an individual to other people you start to realize that that is what you know people are going through as well and you start thinking oh so you've suffered with similar things and just having that kind of middle ground to discuss makes the conversation not only easier but just a lot more understanding you feel like you've lifted weight on your shoulder and like matt was just saying that normalizing therapies are is a massive thing because you know going to therapy i've I always thought at first, oh God, like, I need to go and see someone, but that should be, a, that's a massive strength, you know, taking yourself just to speak to somebody, not only are you doing yourself good, but it's, it's a massive strength and it should never be deemed as a weakness to go and seek therapy. You know, people have therapy for so many things, weddings breaking down, and it may not even be in the relation of mental health. You know, therapy is just, is a, it's just a, an area to exploit for your troubles and it should be deemed as, yeah, a strength. I was just going to say, I just wish it would be normalised to the point where people realise they could go and see a therapist before ever reaching a point of crisis. Yeah. It's like, I'm guilty of this myself. You know, things had to get incredibly bad for me to seek help. Whereas actually there's, you know, there's quite good uses for therapy, even if you're of well mental health, even if you're of well mental health. 100%, yeah. You know, you can learn so much from people who have studied psychology and can help you to understand the workings of the mind, not just yours, of others, how to become stronger in social situations, how to have better functioning relationships. You can learn all of these things without having to enter moments of crisis and actually probably stop yourself from, from finding yourself in as many moments of crisis in your life by using therapy. Amir. I can see you shaking your head there. You're, you're, you're very intently listening. You agree, right? I really do. And, and Stephen's absolutely right. Often by the time people come and speak to me as a, as a GP, uh, it, it, a lot of water has, has, has passed under the bridge. And, and you know, they're at a point where they're thinking about harming themselves. They feel completely empty, completely hopeless. And, and, and they, they've, got a, they've got a feeling of a very bleak future ahead. But we want to catch them well before that, really. We want to catch them uh, as they're getting their initial lows, their initial dips. I think talking about therapy like this is, is really important. The, the elephant in the room, yeah. really, as an NHS worker, is access to therapy. And Alex talked about um, paying for it. Uh, and, and I think that's an important point to make. You know, it, I refer people for talking therapy, for cognitive behavioral therapy. They can be waiting up to a year before they get seen, sometimes 18 months. Uh, and they're stuck in this limbo period while we're talking about therapy and how good it is for people and how accessible it needs to be, we have to acknowledge the fact that when people go and see someone and speak to a healthcare professional, they are then put on a waiting list, which can go on for months, even years before they get the right therapy that they need. Very interestingly, uh, and, and Stephen, I, I'm going to ask you all now what you do uh, for therapies or alternative therapies, because I find it fascinating because it's... Um, Again, it's putting things into perspective and changing the mentality around the cost of therapy. I'm fully aware that most therapies are very expensive and you have to go private and that's very, very annoying and that I should change. But it's certain things like alternative therapies where you, you, you could possibly uh, invest in your mind. So we've normalized paying for gym membership, paying for protein shakes, paying for different things to help your physical state. Going to see a physical therapist seems like it's more, um, more normal and acceptable 
to do that, how do we get men, the men of the world to kind of re replace that thought and that judgment associated with mental health therapy? Stephen, I'm going to ask you, what, what do you do in that realm first? Um, do you know what? I think, I mean, with everything you've just mentioned, the reason that all of those things are so commonplace and so accessible is because they've been commercialized. Um, so I think actually a company like Superdrug taking it upon themselves to help or to partner with a company like My Online Therapy is incredibly helpful because it puts it in a shop front. It's not hidden behind a closed door of a building that no one knows has psychologists in it. It puts it in front of people, which begins to normalize it. This is a regular service that you can access. Um, and, it, you know, like you wouldn't go to the, you know, if, if you were an athlete, you wouldn't just train. You would also have some sort of sports therapy, right? So why is it that we think we can endure week after week after week after week after, you know, of all the stress that we encounter in our everyday lives for so long without ever having to have some sort of mind massage, if that's what you want to call therapy, you know? Like, why do we think that our brains are not going to suffer the stress of everyday life in the same way that our muscles would if we were, were, were overusing them? It's partially, Alexander, it's partially about knowing yourself as well and knowing what you need for yourself isn't it? Well, I think I have a really complicated relationship to the concept of self-care because I think it is important to look after yourself. We do, we should encourage people to look after themselves in various different ways, including around mental health. But I think the difficulty with, with poor mental health is that sometimes you're not in the state to be able to help yourself, right? Sometimes you are so anxious, you're so depressed, you're dealing with addiction, whatever it is, that you are literally not able to support yourself in the way that you need. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I think for me, I do always put the emphasis on on therapy. I do always put the emphasis on having a support system around you. I do think there are certain things that, and you know, I'm not reinventing the wheel here. These are all things people will have heard of before. Things like surprise, meditation, <laughs> surprise, yoga. I think the thing for me that I found the most impactful in terms of um, taking responsibility for, for my own care in some ways and not, uh, not using uh, therapists has been... Um, reading about and learning about the concept of self-compassion and self-compassion, excuse me, <clears throat> self-compassion as opposed to self-esteem. So self-esteem we often think of as, you know, how I feel about myself, but self-esteem hinges on the thoughts and the feelings of other people. You know, self-esteem is when you put up a an Instagram post and you get like a million likes, like Chris, very jealous Chris. Um, or, you know, or, 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 you know, you, you go down the street and, you know, someone's like, oh, you're looking great or whatever it is, you know, or, you know, getting a promotion at work is self-esteem. <laughs> Self-compassion is not hinging your own self-worth on the feelings and the thoughts of other people and learning and training yourself to be kind to yourself and understanding your own inherent worth without that feedback. And that's extremely difficult to do. And it's not something we're taught how to do, right? In fact, we're taught no. the other thing. We're taught that we should rely on other people's thoughts and feelings to kind of ground <laughs> us in how we feel about ourselves. Learning and reading about that and, and trying to practice that. So doing, for example, like mindful meditations where I am just actively kind to myself has for me been, I think, the most transformative thing towards helping myself. That being said, I did not do that alone. I did that with the support and help of, you know, I was very lucky to go to a free course on it, for example. So I think there are resources out there. And I would always, always stress to people that look out for the resources that you can find. Don't necessarily put all the responsibility on yourself to look after yourself. You might simply not be able to, and that's also okay. I think it's very important, uh, uh, Amir, for, for people around uh, the person to be aware of uh, their mental health, uh, etc. How, how do you recognize if someone is suffering from a mental health issue? 
Yeah, I think that's that's key, really. You know, we're talking about us talking about our mental health, but we need to empower people around us to be able to recognise when someone may be in trouble and they may may need help. And signs and symptoms may be maybe um, really subtle. It can start off with just poor concentration, uh, not being able to remember things that you would normally remember, uh, not being being able to make a decision uh, on things, just becoming tired, or they may lose interest in things uh, uh, that they enjoy enjoyed before their hobbies interests sex that kind of thing poor sleep uh, uh, may become a thing and then it goes on to more serious things so they start having negative thoughts about themselves uh, um, not enjoying the things that they, they they used to enjoy or looking forward to things having a, a thoughts of a, have a bleak future uh, no pleasure in life becoming really anxious and worried about things that they may not have otherwise worried about and then their relationships with other people suffer as a as a result of that they may become snappy with them angry with them uh, or withdrawn as well so those are the kind of things to to look out for the more serious things we, we've touched on already um signs of uh, deliberate self-harm and that may not be as obvious as 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 uh, cutting yourself or injuring yourself in in that kind of way but it could be drug abuse and alcohol abuse uh, and and then really really worrying things uh, suicidal ideation wishing that you hadn't woken up that morning, uh, wishing that you weren't here anymore, thinking that the world would be a better place without you, thinking that your family and friends would be better off without you. None of that is is true. Uh, and so, so it is really important that we are all aware of these signs and symptoms of low mood depression and anxiety. And unfortunately, as we know, we, we are all aware that there was a huge mental health crisis before this pandemic that hit us this year. It's been an atrocious year econo- economically uh, for everybody's mental health. Uh, Chris, um, has it affected you in any way? Uh, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a struggle. It's, it's trying to find normalities within life again um, in a situation which has been lumped on us out of the blue. And I feel like the whole... You know the whole lockdown it, it can affect people in so many different ways you know that you've got the, the financial financial issues what come with it you've got like we're going back to actually on the therapy front you know those financial issues like you were saying Matt. like if, if you you know i'm i'm fortunate enough that i've seen people in the private sector but if you can't do that and you're having financial issues how are you meant to see a therapist or how are you meant to have anybody that you know where you're meant to go to speak to if you can't afford to do that and that's the thing what's bringing you down like it's something which you know you're 100 percent right you know therapy needs to be brought to an area that everybody can exploit um but going back to now yeah the whole lockdown situation no it's been tough um i found something what made me feel a lot better was when the golf courses reopened i feel like i'm a proper i'm a, I'm a country lad you know i live down in the countryside i live in the cotswolds i'm now down in hertfordshire but just having somewhere to get a way to get out of the house to have that freedom I feel like golf is an amazing and sport in general is such good therapy for me it's a way to free my mind it makes me focus on that what I'm doing in the present time as opposed to things what are happening around us and I mean it's 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 been it's been tough but I've I've coped do you know what I mean I've coped with it so I can't sit here and say you know I've struggled completely because I found ways that you know when I do like I was referring to earlier when I do feel like I'm suffering I find ways to cope with it and I've had my own coping mechanisms and yeah, just sport, golf and eventually being able to see your friends and family and going out again was like, was a, a blessing, massive blessing. And what about you, Amir? How was, uh, how's this year been for your mental health? I'll be honest with you, you know, until this year, I was lucky enough not to really suffer from any serious mental health issues. And it wasn't until uh, 
coronavirus really hit some of our, our most vulnerable patients in, in our nursing homes where it, it really took its toll. So, you know, I'm from a, a South Asian background. I, I'm a GP. I was going into these nursing homes to see these patients. And I knew, you know, I was acutely aware of how uh, clinicians were, were, were picking up the virus from patients and dying as a result, particularly South Asian uh, uh, people. Uh, and that was a real concern for me. But more more than that, I was seeing patients that I'd looked after for years um, die in numbers that I'd never really come across before. Uh, and that in itself would have been manageable. But then I was having daily conversations with relatives about their very sick or their their sadly died, uh, dying uh, uh, family members. And, and each day I'd come home from work and, uh, you know, it, it'd take me some some time to un, uh, unravel all of that. I, uh, uh, Chris talked about being outside and that really helped me. I, uh, you know, being outside with nature was a was a big part of my therapy. Uh, but I was having those really difficult conversations on the phone with relatives, which was completely alien to me. I would normally have them sitting beside me, a cup of tea. I'd, I'd put my hand on their hand if they needed that kind of thing. And to, to, to do it so differently... Uh, uh, and, and really, it was almost every day for a while. And, and that, you know, I've got a fear of that happening again as we as we go into the, the winter period. Uh, uh, it, it really took its toll. I wasn't sleeping. I, I, it was the first time I was anxious to go into work. I learned to, to manage it. I talked to my colleagues about it who were feeling similarly, and that really did help. But I think there is a ticking time bomb within the NHS. You know, we, we've all been working really hard during this pandemic uh, and it will take its toll on the mental health of NHS workers uh, and and that is something that we really need to be acutely aware of but well, it seems like there you 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 dug into your tool chest your your treasure chest of uh, mental health tools to get you out of certain situations what, what is the help like there for you is there is it do you think it's good enough there is specific help available for uh, for NHS workers. So there are helplines, there are online tools as well. Uh, I found personally talking to my very supportive colleagues about it the most useful thing uh, uh, for me. Uh, and and they because they were going through similar things, it, 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 you know, they could relate to it better. And and I must um, say, that, you know, and I'm a big advocate for this, but being outdoors, being with nature, being in green spaces uh, was a was a massive uh, help for me as well. And there's there's lots of proven benefits to that uh, and that can be done alone or in conjunction with conventional medical therapy but it, it really helped I remember very clearly one time I went into a nursing home and a, and a patient I'd known for years and years and years had sadly passed away I went to verify the death uh, and and it was really hard because looking after him I'd go in there with full PPE on and he had dementia uh, and normally he would recognize me when I wasn't in my PPE and, and we'd have a, a brief conversation before uh, and he'd recognize it, it was just quite lovely but when he saw me PPE became very afraid. It was really difficult. And I remember coming out of there, that, that um, time when, when I had to go in to verify his death and just sitting in my car uh, for, for I lost track of time. It must have been close to an hour just thinking about how I was going to ring his wife and tell her what had happened because the week before she'd asked me whether he was going to die and what I could do for him. And it was it was really, really hard. And that hour just simply vanished. I have no idea what happened to it. I must have just been lost in my own thoughts. And it took me some time to get over uh, over that, really. Oh, Amir, that's, that's an awful story. But thank you very much for, for sharing that. Um, Alex, uh, mental health tools are such a big part of my life. Um, I have many different ones that I pluck from every single day. What is, what personally, 
uh, what's helped you when it comes to your mental health? Yeah, so I talked a little bit about self-compassion before. I think looking into the lockdown, because we're all, or many of us are in a situation now where we're going to be shut inside for a month. The things that I lean on are a routine. So I have a really strict and quite boring, if I'm honest, routine, <laughs> but it keeps me on the straight and narrow or on, or on the gay and narrow, frankly. But, you know, it keeps me kind of like doing the same things all the time. And in, in a really straight, I, I can see everyone's still laughing about the gay and narrow. I know it was iconic. Um, um, I think you, you've made that joke before. <laughs> I actually haven't. I seriously haven't. It just came to me. Um, oh, I don't know if I believe uh, that. Yeah. It a merchandise range. <laughs> yeah. Um, no. But, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think routine is a really good one, like, because it's something you can default on. You know, we, uh, I, I know 100% sure that during the next month, I'm going to wake up one morning and I'm going to feel horrible. I'm going to feel horrific and forcing myself to go and do the things that I normally do every morning. So for me, it's go for a walk, you know, have breakfast, sit in front of my sad lamp, you know, all these kinds of things, which I've written down really, really, really helps. The other thing that I would say, um, and this is particularly, um, profound, I think, among men is to reach out to someone that you're close with. That doesn't have to be a man, doesn't, you know, the gender is kind of, I think just for the purpose of this conversation, it might be useful. Um, and have like a mental health buddy. I had this during last lockdown as well, where you commit to each other. You say, if I'm having a terrible, terrible day, I will reach out to you and you will reach out to me. And we are the people that are going to rely on each other during this period, right? Because I think as men in particular, we don't always feel comfortable being that explicit about our needs. Men are taught that we're not supposed to have needs. We're supposed to sort it all out, figure it all out. We're not supposed to be vulnerable. And I think actually reaching out to someone that you're close with, who is, you know, like a close male friend, or it could be a partner, it could be a family member, and just saying, we're about to go through a really difficult time. Will will you will we be there for it? Can we be there for each other? Actively asking how we're going, how our heads at, you know. Uh, and reaching out to each other in, in a really intentional way rather than just assuming that, that we're all okay. I think routine and explicit and intentional relationships are things that I lean on, um, broadly speaking, but particularly during during the difficult period that we're about to go through. Having somebody to check in on is incredibly important. Stephen, would you agree with that? Is that Pug behind you? Is that who checks in on you? Oh, my God. See, now there is. I was going to say that is my number one mental health tip. Um, Alex spoke about going out for a walk, man. I put up a post today alluding to this podcast and people being able to listen to it um, afterwards and just said, just remember one foot in front of the other. Um, and honestly, getting up and getting out of bed can be the hardest thing to do some days. So celebrate that. If you're able to get yourself up and out of bed, one foot in front of the other. Beyond that, have a cold shower. Sounds like insanity. If you think it only helps because your day can't possibly get any worse after having something as atrocious <laughs> as a cold shower, there are many, many, many benefits to it, not least of all the endorphins it gives you. Um, it's something I still hate some days, um, but honestly, there's never a time when I... It's like when, you, like when I take my dogs out in the rain, it was, the rain was biblical a couple of days ago, and I got my dogs out and I was running about with them. I must have looked a bit like a madman. Everyone else looked a bit miserable. I had this huge smile on my face. I felt like I was playing a part in Braveheart without all the violence. Um, and when I, when, I got, when I got home, I was like, I just, you know, my, my girlfriend was there. She was like, what's wrong with you? And because I was smiling and I probably looked a bit crazy. I was like, nothing. <laughs> I actually feel really, really good. And I was just so glad that I'd got up and I'd got out and I'd done that. And I probably wouldn't have, if I didn't have dogs, I had, I'm responsible for them, you know? 
they're they're my dependent others so um my dogs are are, are my number one mental health tip yeah i feel like yeah what steve what steven saying is yeah is bang on obviously you need to get out and i feel like that's what people shouldn't like this whole lockdown like shouldn't stop you from being able to get out and walk around because it is so important for the mental health getting out in the in the countryside and i think another thing as well this lockdown's happening when the clocks have gone back and i mean they've gone for they gone back or forward back we got an extra hour kit that mentally when it's darker at night I, I hate dark nights like i hate the dark i don't like all that and it's dark at five o'clock now that's quite a sad thing like the pathetic fallacy behind it is you know you think of dark as sadness and you know enjoy your day get out in the day go and do what makes you happy go for a walk get some fresh air like feel the lungs it's, it's so important so uh, i was just gonna say there's real science behind getting outdoors and how that that benefits your, your health you know being outdoors being in green spaces being on beaches that kind of thing getting outdoors reduces your stress hormones cortisol uh, and it increases some of your uh, neurotransmitters that make you feel better dopamine serotonin so so there's real science behind it so it, it does work yeah I mean, it, it takes, it just takes you, you, your own being to care about yourself, to give, give them enough of a damn about yourself to say, do you know what? I'm going to go and do this today. I mean, there's so many different things for you to do. And, and the simple act of self-care of just giving that time of the day to go and check in with a buddy, to go and have that walk with your dogs, to go and just spend some animalistic, whatever energy that is as men have, to go outside and just feel something, you know? And, and I think that's that's the real big step, like especially over the next coming months, is for us to, to look at ourselves and go, what do I need for me? What do I need to get through this? Because I absolutely am worth it. I think that's very important. I think that's bang on. And I think there's a, a really concise way of my idea of what is really good for people especially during this period is if you can do two things a day do one it gives you a chance to think about things and to contemplate to process and then do something else that doesn't give you a chance to think about anything apart from the matter at hand which might be swinging a kettlebell around or it might be flipping a tire or it might be doing push-ups or you know it might be doing hill sprints but if you can you know fit both of those into each and every day so you have some time to think and some time where you don't have time to think or worry about anything i think it does you the world of good that's spot on that's spot mm. on definitely guys um i've got to close it up very shortly which is a shame because i could go on like this all day because i think this is very much important the the the, the male conversation around mental health is very important and very quickly i'm going to ask each and every one of you where would you like to see the conversation move forward into the future and i'm going to start with you amir I want to see men being more supportive of other men when they talk to them uh, about about their mental health, a bit like what we've done today. Uh, we, we need to be able to recognise that, yes, we are vulnerable and that is perfectly human uh, and we should be there for each other. Alex? Mine's very simple. Equity of access to mental health services. No one should be prevented from getting in touch with a therapist because of their socioeconomic background or because of their identity. We all deserve, I mean, I honestly, you know, healthcare is a human right. Mental health care is a human right. It's, that's, that's the biggest thing for me. Stephen? I kind of agree with Alex, to be honest with you. I think accessibility for everyone is something that we should all be able to access irrespective of our background, our gender. I stole, I stole your, on that one. stole your thing there. <laughs> you, you did. Damn I was it. sitting there just thinking, yeah, but then you yeah. did better. <laughs> They've stole mine as well. But um, Chris, normalising therapy, absolutely. Uh, giving everybody the option. Making therapy feel like a strength and not a weakness. And of course, uh, like Amir was saying, you know, reaching out to a friend. 
it makes you feel great knowing that you've you've checked in on somebody and it's great when somebody checks in on you and if you can find that like forefront with somebody and that connection you can have together i have it with my brother he like he messages me every day and it kind of works for us so yeah it's uh yeah it's a good thing i can add one for you if you want go on please do I think um, something that we need to do is get beyond conversation. I think we need to start actioning things. I think we need to start seeing support in places where people need it the most. And that, you know, we could start with some quite large corporations who should probably take some responsibility for the mental health issues they cause the people that work for them. It's only fair that they then provide support. I would do a mic drop, but, you know. I think, I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> guys, I, I I fully agree with every single thing that you said. The 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 world of conversation is is really blossoming, as you can see today. Men are communicating with men. The definition of what a man is or what masculinity is is moving in a rapid way. We're all working out who we are as individuals, which I think is incredibly, incredibly important. And 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 knowing knowing yourself, knowing what you need to do to make yourself feel a bit better today. We're all in different situations. Stop comparing yourself to everybody else. I think comparison is the death of joy. Um, but Guys, having this conversation with you today just gives me full, full pride and in the knowledge that we are going in the right direction at least. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Matt. No, thank you. Matt. Thank, feel you. Good. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Been lovely. It's amazing. Uh, like I said, uh, that conversation is uh, really important. I hope you guys at home have really enjoyed it. This has been the Mention Health podcast with Superdrug, and hopefully we'll see you soon. Superdrug TV, the new YouTube show you need. Hosted by the one and only Daisy Maskell. It's jam-packed with celebrity interviews, the hottest new makeup and skincare launches, and all your health questions answered. Catch up with the latest show now, and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Find it on the Superdrug YouTube channel now.